Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. In this week's podcast, you'll hear stories about a rule-following good girl making a stand against injustice. A woman who uses kindness to defuse a potentially dangerous situation in Brooklyn, New York. Successful communication during a near-death experience on a mountain road. And a neighborhood coming together to protect songbirds in a time of crisis. Today we feature four storytellers who worked hard during a Tell Us Something intensive storytelling week-long workshop. They shared their true personal stories from their living rooms, their kitchens, their bedrooms, from their homes during our first ever live-streamed event. The theme for the night was No Excuses, Stories of Hope and Resilience. We didn't have full control over the sound quality for all of the storytellers, and some of them are somewhat compromised because of internet connectivity issues. All of the stories are worth hearing, and they're all incredible. Thanks for your patience with the limitations of live storytelling during Shelter in Place. Thank you to our title sponsor, The Good Food Store, for their continued support in helping people get their stories heard and all that they have been doing to keep our community safe as we get the local, healthy, and delicious food we need to keep us healthy. Thank you to our enduring sponsor, CabinetParts.com, your place for specialty cabinet parts. Thank you to our champion sponsor, True Food Missoula, offering weekly meal delivery to nourish your family and friends, made for the Missoula community by the Missoula community. Thank you to our major sponsor, Blackfoot Communications, who have been working hard getting the internet to rural communities so that people can continue working when possible, and especially so that kiddos can continue their learning through online learning programs in the schools during shelter in place. And thanks to Logjam Presents. I can't wait to be back at the Wilma with all of you when it is again safe to do so. Thanks for all you do for this community. Thanks goes out as well to MissoulaEvents.net for all of their pivot and efforts to let the local community know how to support the artists, musicians, businesses, and festivals in their online streaming efforts. You have an opportunity to share your COVID-19 stories. The Tell Us Something pitch line has been transformed into a repository for people to call and share their stories about life during the pandemic. Your story can be about anything, challenges you're facing, successes you've had, the little things that bring you joy that you used to take for granted. Whatever your story is right now during the pandemic, I invite you to share it by calling the storyline 406-203-4683. Now more than ever, it is important to actively listen to one another, to join together and to support each other and share stories. This is your community. These are your stories. Thank you for your support of each other and of each other's stories. Tell Us Something believes that everyone has a story and everyone's story matters. Our first story comes to us from Bonnie Bishop, who encounters a personality at work that has some interesting ideas about what constitutes professional attire. Bonnie calls her story, Greater Than My Pants. Thanks for listening. When I was in middle school, into high school, definitely in college, and even a little bit now, I've been battling with this condition. And it's pretty common of some of you may also be battling it. It's something I've heard called good girl syndrome. And it's pretty life altering. And it can look like a lot of different things for a lot of different women. 
But for me, it looked like this overly, overly ambitious, perfectionist, kind of people-pleasing gunk. It's something that I'm in active, active recovery from now, but working on it. Another thing about me is that I'm someone who seems to take the path of most resistance in life. And I think it's really coming from this like innate defiance that seems to be somewhere in me, definitely from a different place than the good girl syndrome. So as you can imagine, having this good girl condition and being an innately defiant, curious person and taking the path of most resistance makes a pretty interesting internal dialogue. This really all came to head when I was in college. So this is my senior year of college. It's my last semester. I'm studying something called athletic training, which is basically injury prevention, assessment, and rehab. And I put in thousands of clinical hours. I'm about to sit for my board's exam, and it's my last clinical rotation. So what's cool about this is that I finally get to pick where I'm going to do my rotation. And for any of you that are students, you know that you'll go, you go a long time being like free labor. And so when you finally get a choice, it's pretty exciting. I knew exactly where I wanted to do my final rotation. And it was with public safety police officers. I didn't want to work with traditional athletes. I wanted to work with untraditional athletes. So I didn't want to work with high schoolers or college or professional. I wanted to work with police officers. Hence, path of most resistance. I also wanted to do this because I heard about the teacher that ran that clinical site. We'll just call her Miss Ma'am because she would probably like that. Miss Ma'am had a reputation of never giving anyone an A and also of never really liking anyone. So of course, this puts my like good girl syndrome into overdrive. I have to go through a lie detector test. I have to get fingerprinted. I have to Um, be interviewed by a cop, all just to get to this site. So I meet Miss Ma'am, and I can quickly see how she got her reputation. She does things like she doesn't eat in front of anybody because it's a sign of vulnerability or something. Instead Instead of learning how to assess injuries and rehab them my first week, I learned things like how to situate the Tide Pod in the washing machine perfectly so that when it breaks open, it cleans all the towels in the same way. I also learned that I was constantly being assessed. Whether I was being graded or not, she was always grading me. So I'm trying to keep up with all this. And one thing I noticed is that Miss Ma'am had this bird feeder outside of the clinic that she would fill up every morning at 6.45, no exceptions. So like the birds could eat, but she couldn't eat. I don't know. But I figured this out. So I started feeding the birds in the morning and then I'd come into the clinic and start our clinical day. One day in particular, I'm packing up my stuff. I finished a day. I I survived another day with Miss Ma'am, which is like great. And she pulls me aside and she goes, Bonnie, I need to talk to you about something. And uh, I want to do it in private. And I'm like, how did you situate the Tide Pods today? Crap. But she goes, I could have sent you home today. I decided not to. But before you come to the clinic tomorrow, you need to wear a different pair of pants because those are unprofessional. And I'm like, that's the first time I've ever been called unprofessional in my life because, you know, with good girl syndrome, we're all about professionalism, perfectionism, all those things. So 
So I've never heard anything like that. I get this like gross, icky feeling. And immediately I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, Miss Ma'am. Yeah, definitely. I'll come back tomorrow with different pants on. Uh, Sorry about that. And those words just jumped out of me. I'm sorry seems to be a severe symptom of good girl syndrome. It's almost like this involuntary subconscious, just like vomit that comes out of you. It's almost kind of like a hiccup, actually, where you're like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, I can't stop. I'm sorry. Anyways, I said it, though. I get my backpack and I get out of the clinic and I'm looking down on my pants and I'm like, this is weird. I've worn these pants all the time. I've never been called that before. That's a gross feeling. So I go to my I go to the university to my clinical director and I'm like, I'm like, hey, is there anything wrong with my outfit? And she's like on the phone looking at me like, Bonnie, I don't get paid enough for this shit. Like, what are you talking about? I'm not here to talk about your outfit. And I was like, well, Miss Ma'am said that it's unprofessional. And she was like, what? Just wear, wear something else then. And then, you know, I asked my mom and my mom is like this corporate boss lady, right? And she always has like two phones. And I'm like, mom, is there anything wrong with my pants? And she's like on her phones and she's like, what? No. So anyways, I decide to go pants shopping because I got to get an A because that's what I do. And I'm really, I've already been feeding the birds. So I got to go. I gotta go pan shopping. And I've got this like waist that doesn't fit my butt and butt that doesn't fit my waist. So going pan shopping is like mission impossible always. But I go and I buy three pairs of pants and I know they're professional pants because they have those like bullshit buttons on them, you know, where like nothing actually goes in the pockets. Um, so I'm like, okay, we are good on the professional pants. And I wear them. And so for a few days, me and Miss Ma'am are good in the clinic. She doesn't bring them up. I'm like, great. I never have to experience that again. But one morning I go into the clinic. I pick up the bird seeds, 645 in the morning, go free the freaking birds, come back. And I'm walking into the clinic, holding the bag. And I just look up and I stop in my tracks. Miss Ma'am is glaring at me. And it looks like steam is coming out of her eyes and her ears and her nose. She is red in the face and pissed. And I'm like, someone has died. Someone has died because that's the only reason that people look at each other like this. So I say, Miss Ma'am, is everything okay? And she goes, she goes off on me. She's like, I don't understand what you're not understanding. You've been pretty professional except for this. I told you about your pants. I've now had three different people come up to me and comment about your pants. And I'm just wondering, like, what are you even doing here? Why are you here? Do you have a pair of sweatpants or something that you can put on over that? Because this is unacceptable. I'm not understanding what you're not understanding. So I'm like kind of like having an out-of-body experience, it feels like, holding this freaking bag of birdseed. And I'm looking down at my pants and I just feel this feeling just cover me like a veil, like it's a thunderstorm, like it's just pouring down on me. My eyes go to the ground. I kind of feel my shoulders cave in. I feel sick to my stomach. Stomach. I just want to disappear. I just feel this shame that I just can't get out of. And I'm looking down. I'm about to say I'm sorry. I'm about to go. Good girl syndrome is just like flaring up everywhere. And all of a sudden I feel this bubbling, this heat just coming up from my toes all the way through my body. And it's absolute freaking rage. I am so pissed in this moment. And so quickly that shift happened. And I felt this bubbling up right here, right at my throat. And it was a moment. I have a decision of the type of woman I want to be in this situation. What the hell am I apologizing for? You're not sorry about anything. And 
Also, hell hath no fury like a woman who has bought three pairs of pants and continues to get crap for it. And I am just so freaking angry. So I make a choice. And I know when I make this choice, I'm not just making one. I'm making a choice for the rest of my life that I'm going to bubble up. I'm going to say this. And I go, Miss Ma'am, one quick question. Those three people that made comments about my pants, were they men? And Miss Ma'am changes her whole body language, right? Her hands go up. No, 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 no. No one's looking at your ass. That's not what's happening here. No one's looking at your butt. Okay, no one's doing that. And I was like, well, it seems like that's the case. My pants have nothing to do with my performance in this clinic. I bought three pairs of pants and they're all gonna be the same. And if you wanna have a bigger conversation about why the men in this setting can't stop staring at my ass, we can. But I hope you come, you come to them with the same intensity that you're coming at me right now. And she goes, okay, all right, we'll talk about it later. Guess what, we never talked about it again. So it's my last week. I made it through. She gave me my final grade, which was an A minus. Okay. Let me let you in on a little secret. People pleasing, it's not worth it. So she gives me this A minus. I know I got that. And we're walking down a hallway and we're kind of shoulder and shoulder. And I start to feel her kind of pulling back a little bit. And it's because on my last day, I wore a pantsuit. Okay. I was not wearing a dress. I wore a pantsuit and for a reason. And I feel her hanging back and she's kind of She's kind of looking at me and I know that she's about to make another comment again that she was thinking that maybe she could go there again and so we made eye contact woman to woman and I asked her a question and it meant a lot more than what I said and I said miss ma'am did you forget anything did you forget something and she goes no we didn't I, I didn't forget anything and I know we had a whole conversation in that and that was the last time I saw Miss Ma'am, didn't see her again. So I'm filling out this clinical evaluation, right? You have to do this. You have to do this at every single clinical site that you go to. And it asked, you know, what, it, what did you learn from this clinical experience? So I start writing the right thing. I learned about upper body therapeutic intervention, blah, 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 blah. That's another sign of a good girl syndrome. You always say the right thing, not really the real thing. So I start filling that crap in. And I see my hand just erasing, involuntarily, just erasing that. And I'm like, I read the question again. What did you learn from this clinical experience? Well, I learned a few things. I learned the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt comes from a behavior and it's helpful. It can be good feedback sometimes. If you screw up, you feel guilt about it. But shame, shame comes from an inner sense of unworthiness. And I learned that I was born worthy. I learned that it's never about the pants. It's never about what the woman's wearing. It's never about what the woman's wearing. I learned that I have just as much unlearning to do in life as I do learning. I didn't learn a damn thing about athletic training, but I learned this. Thankfully, I didn't have a lot of space to write or I would have written all that out. So I just left it at this sentence. What did you learn in this clinical experience? I learned that in life and in practice, you do no harm, but you take no shit. Thank you. Thanks, Bonnie. Bonnie Bishop is originally from Northern Virginia, but moved to Missoula three years ago, sight unseen, after working a few summers in Yellowstone National Park, where her love for wild things took hold. Since then, Bonnie has gotten her master's degree in public and community health from the University of Montana which has fueled her passion 
for health equality and social justice. Bonnie values authenticity, laughter, empowerment, courage, and swears by blasting evanescence in the bathtub as the remedy for a bad day. Described by her family and friends as an earthy firecracker, she is proud to have shared her story at Tell Us Something. To see a picture of Bonnie after she confronted Miss Ma'am, visit tellussomething.org. Our next story comes to us from Anna Steen, who finds herself in Brooklyn, New York, and is walking home one morning when she decides to explore an unfamiliar neighborhood on the way home. She encounters a man who engages her with a surprising question. Anna calls her story, Can't you see I'm wearing headphones? Or, If you must know. Thanks for listening. So it was December 23rd, 2019. I was in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, New York. I had left Montana about six weeks earlier. I wanted to avoid another dull gray Northwest Montana winter and a heartbreak. And the day before, I had watched Sunday football with a friend, and after the last football game, we NASCAR toured the neighborhood bars until 4 a.m., and I crashed at his place. So when I stepped out into this beautiful, brisk winter morning, um, I was really grateful for my sunglasses and earbuds because I had a whiskey hangover, the kind that burns your skin. He lived on the east side of Crown Heights, and I needed to make my way back to the west side near the botanical gardens. And one of the things that I love about New York City is that it changes block to block. And you can find yourself in these enclaves that are completely different one from the other. So I decided, being new to the neighborhood, that I would explore kind of north to south as I worked my way west. And pretty soon I found myself in a Hasidic Jewish community. I had done a little research on Crown Heights uh, when I moved there, and I knew that this was one of the largest Hasidic neighborhoods in the borough. And I felt like I was in another country, and I just let myself be a tourist. I just enjoyed seeing the dress shops, the bakeries, the delis, the shoe shops, and I decided to go into a coffee shop and get a little hangover remedy. And a little bit of a backstory here, I am often mistaken for being Jewish. Uh, it's happened my whole adult life. I uh, get asked a few times a year if I am Jewish, part of the sisterhood. My last name is Steen. It's Norwegian, pronounced Stena in the old country, but here it's Steen. So this is just something I've come to accept. But in that coffee shop, I realized that I was now the foreigner, and it was clear that I was the only Gentile in the coffee shop. So I got my quad Americano and continued to pick my way through the blocks. I came upon a block that I suddenly realized was eerily quiet. It didn't feel comfortable. Um, nothing was going on, and, and it was because nothing was going on. There were a couple of guys on the left-hand side up near the next block, uh, a couple of guys in the middle of the block on the right, hanging out, sitting on chairs or something, just kind of shooting shit. And I was already committed to the block, but I got 
a feeling. So I, I was, I just, I walked down the block and as I passed the two gentlemen on the right, I acknowledged them with a nod and continued walking. As someone who has traveled extensively and almost exclusively alone, I have a couple of tools that I use. One is headphones. They're great on the subway. They create this kind of barrier or bubble. And I also walk very quickly. And it helps me navigate through crowds and also helps me get out of situations. I am a country girl. I grew up in the Midwest. I have lived my whole adult life in Montana. But I have um, a heightened sense of awareness in, in the city. And New York is my city. I'm extraordinarily comfortable there. And once I got past this block, I knew that I wanted to get to a busier area. So I walked up to one of the boulevards. And as I was walking, I passed a young man who tried to get my attention. But I used my earbuds as that barrier. And I continued walking quickly past him. But he kept pace with me. He was on my left shoulder, but a few feet behind me. And he kept asking me a question over and over again. And it went for enough feet that I realized that it was a situation that could possibly escalate. And I also felt kind of rude. And so I made a split uh, moment decision and I took my earbud out and I said, excuse me, what did you say? And he caught up to me, but I continued walking and he said, how's your day? And I said, it's great. It's beautiful out. How's your day? And as he was walking next to me, I noticed that he was only wearing a white t-shirt, even though it was quite brisk morning. He wasn't much taller than me, but he was built. He was really strong. I could see his muscles in his arms, and I just kind of took it all in as I was taking in this whole landscape. And he said, are you Jewish? And I hesitated, and I chuckled, and I said, no, but I get asked that a lot. And he said, are you Irish? And I said, Eskosh, I'm Norwegian, Swedish, Irish. And he said, oh, I'm half Indian, half black. And I don't know why, but in that moment, in, in kind of a need or a desire to connect and try to figure out what the situation was, I said, oh, my niece and nephew are the same. And then I said, oh, I'm sorry, they're half Indian, half white. And we were approaching the corner and I realized that he was within grabbing distance, like I was within grabbing distance of him. And I didn't quite understand why I was thinking about this, but I am a solo female traveler and I didn't feel nervous. I just kept moving. As we approached the corner um, and the red light, he turned to me and said, you know, do you want to do something with me? Uh, do you want to go get a cup of coffee? And I said, no, on any other day, I would say yes. But I'm actually headed home to pack my bags and go see my niece and nephew. So once again, I tried to kind of personalize the situation, humanize myself 
not quite understanding what the situation was. And as soon as I said this, he stepped back and he said, have a nice day. And I said, happy holidays. I walked across the street and as I moved up the block, I checked over my shoulder a couple of times to see if I was being followed. And I was not. Um, I got to my neighborhood, which is on Franklin Avenue, which is kind of a hot spot in Crown Heights. And the week before I'd had one of the local guys we met over a beer and talked about, you know, what I was doing there. And he kind of cautioned me that there were some homeless shelters in the neighborhood. And that because they got kicked out at 8 a.m., they were hanging out in the neighborhood because Franklin Avenue is gentrified, that's where the money is. But there were also, there was a bit of an uptick of confrontations with people who were living there and maybe some people with some mental health issues and whatnot. And so I was considering this as, um, as I walked. And one of the other pieces of advice that I've been given um, when I, in, in the time that I had been exploring the neighborhood is I'd met a, a shopkeeper who we were talking about gentrification and being a, being a white girl. One thing he said to me was that the white women in the neighborhood wouldn't meet people's eyes. They wouldn't say hello. And so that created a barrier for the local people. And I had absorbed this and I went, that is something I can do. Even though in a city, I tend to not make eye contact, navigate quickly through crowds. I had been kind of practicing acknowledging people in the neighborhood and also wanting to let them know that I lived there and I wanted to be there. I wanted to be part of this. When I got to Franklin Avenue, I decided to stop at my favorite Mexican restaurant and get brunch. And um, I pulled up the New York Times after I ordered, and I saw an article that there had been a hate crime in New Jersey at a, a Jewish deli where three people had died. And I would come to find out over the next week, there were two attacks in the neighborhood that I had just walked through in Crown Heights against Jewish people. And there was another horrific attack at a, at a rabbi's house shortly after that. I thought about this young man and this interaction quite a bit because for me, when I'm traveling, I have found that my best experiences have come from keeping an uh, open mind and treating people with dignity, but having good boundaries and expecting people to operate within those parameters, if we can all kind of meet within that. Very often, people tell me these very personal stories. and. Sometimes I walk away with my own story. Thanks, Anna. Anna Louise Steen is an alumni of the University of Montana's Creative Writing Program. She is a roustabout who collects stories and needs to get a job. A lifelong equestrian, she can fly fish off the back of her horse, but can't manage to catch a damn thing. She currently straddles America with one foot in Montana, and one in Brooklyn, casting for a home. Thanks to all of our sponsors and those we haven't mentioned yet. Axis Physical Therapy, Inertia Physiotherapy, 
Missoula Bone and Joint, and our in-kind sponsors, including Missoula Broadcasting Company, Enlightened Lab Float Center, and Gecko Designs. All right, let's welcome our next storyteller. Katie Matthews and her friend Katie share a fantastic day out in nature, running up a mountain and swimming in a mountain lake in the wilds of Montana. Their trip down the gravel road turns nearly disastrous as Katie's car almost tumbles off the side of the mountain. Ride along with the tow truck driver in a story Katie calls Tow Truck Troubles. Thanks for listening. I'm standing in the middle of this dirt road. I'm what feels like in the middle of nowhere, no service. It's two in the morning and I'm exhausted. I look across the road to my car, which is teetering off this 50 foot cliff, and I'm feeling as defeated as anyone would be in this situation. My friend Katie's standing next to me, just as tired and just as ready to go home. And I remember standing there thinking, like, how are we going to get out of this? How are we going to get home? Bringing it back to earlier that day, I had just finished my spring semester of college and summer was just starting. And that's always an exciting time because you're figuring out what you're going to do and, and seeing people you haven't seen in a while. And so my friend Katie calls me up and she goes, hey, I'm thinking about doing this run to Turquoise Lake. I think it'll be super fun. What are you doing Saturday? Let's, let's go. And so, of course, I agree to it. I only see Katie a couple times a year. And so it's always really nice when we can get together and, and do something like that. So we make a plan and then Saturday comes and we, and we set out to Turquoise Lake. And the drive is beautiful. You go through Sealy Lake. It's 45 minutes past Sealy Lake and you come to this dirt road and you follow it 11 miles up and you find yourself at the trailhead. So when we got there, nobody was there. We had the trail all to ourselves and it was a beautiful, crisp morning, really sunny. And Katie and I are putting on our running shoes and we're getting ready. And, and I should point out at this point, I am not a runner. I do not consider myself a runner. And Katie is this ultra marathon runner. This is her jam. So we put on our running shoes and she looks at me and she goes, okay, well, how do you want to do this? Meaning how do you want to set the pace? And I look at her and I go, Oh, I'll, I'll run in front. I'm going to set the pace. Cause I knew there was no way I was going to be able to keep up with her. So we head off down the trail and, and it's beautiful. The bear grass is in bloom. It's not in the full heat of the day yet. And we're having a lot of fun and, and making our way down the trail. But at some point in the run, as I feel like most sane runners think, I'm wondering when we're going to get to Turquoise Lake. Like, is this lake even going to be there? You know, we're coming up to this hill and I think, okay, just over this hill, coming around this corner. Okay, we're almost there. I'm hearing a stream or I think it's a stream and I'm thinking, okay, this has got to be it. And those thoughts probably recycled for another 30 minutes before we actually arrived at Turquoise Lake. And we get there and it's beautiful. It's a clear, sunny day. And the water is just this bright, deep green blue. So we strip off of our running clothes and we are blowing up our inflatable animals. So part of this run to Turquoise Lake was that we were going to get to the lake and then swim in it with these animal floaties that we bought. I had a stingray, Katie had an alligator. So we spend about another 20, 25 minutes blowing up our floaties. And finally, we make our way into the lake. 
and granted full heat of the day at this point in summer and that lake is still really cold. So after we kind of settled in, we started to paddle around and it was a great opportunity for Katie and I to just slow down. We caught up on our lives. We talked about work. We talked about our partners. We talked about all of our plans that we had for that summer. And it was, it was just a beautiful day. I really, I really enjoyed it out there with her. But as the, as the day went on, our legs started to go numb. And that was a telltale sign that it was time to get out and, and head back down. So we paddle back over to where our clothes are. We put our running gear back on. And at some point we decide that it's a better idea or it's more efficient to just leave our floaties inflated and strap them to our backpacks and run back down the trail, which obviously provided a lot of comedy for us. And lots of photos and videos were taken of this because as Katie's running in front of me and I'm running behind her, I just see this like inflatable alligator bouncing around on her back. And anyway, we're running back down the trail and you know, Turquoise Lake should have been the highlight of the day. It was beautiful. I got to spend it with my best friend. But honestly, making my way back down the trail and seeing the car, that was a pretty close second. So I was just relieved to get back to the car in one piece. So we get in, we put our floaties in the car, and we start heading back down the road. Katie's looking through the videos and photos from that day, deciding which ones that, you know, we were going to share. And at, she's leaning over to show me this photo that she took. And at that moment, I can feel the back end of the car start to slip away. And a side note here, this is where we found out that the day beforehand, they had just regraveled this road. So I feel the back end of my Subaru Impreza start to slip out. And of course, the Subaru Impreza is not a convenient car if you wanna drive anywhere in Montana. So I quickly turned the wheel sharply to try and avoid the direction that we're quickly headed. And within seconds, we are dangling off the side of the road, probably at about 180 degrees. And I just remember after those split seconds, I just remember looking straight down at Katie and Katie's looking straight up at me and my eyes were the size of dinner plates. And I'm just trying to absorb what all has just happened. On my right-hand side where Katie's sitting, there's about 50 feet below us of just this thick underbrush, absolutely nothing, just the abyss. And so I knew that it was my task to get out of the driver's side and pull Katie out the driver's side door. So we get out of the car and we have to close the door carefully because looking at how the car is situated on the road, it's the front left tire of my car that's acting as a hook that's keeping us on this gravel road. We step back and we look at the situation and we know there's nothing we can do. We're 11 miles up this road. We have no service. There's nothing we can do with the car. So we just have to sit and wait and try and get it right back into Sealy Lake. By that point, when we got back to the trailhead, more hikers had showed up throughout the day. So within about 25 minutes, uh, these two hikers happened to be driving back to town. And by judging by our faces and where my car was on the road, they offered us a ride back into Sealy Lake. So we get back to Sealy Lake and I'm just relieved to have service. I'm relieved to be around people um, so I can try and figure out the next step. So I do what any responsible young adult in college does. I called my parents. 
And of course, I'm on the verge of tears, but Katie's not crying, so I know that I don't have to cry. But I call my parents and I go, here's the situation. I don't, what do I do? And of course, after some talking down and, and I finally collect myself, I call the insurance company. And I inform them of the situation, tell them where we are. And then they give me the name and number of the only tow truck driver in Sealy Lake, Montana, Todd. So I dial the number in my phone and I call Todd. And everybody knows Todd. He's the tow truck driver. So I get a hold of, a hold of Todd and I tell him our situation. And he goes, well, I'm trying to get another truck unstuck right now, but I'll meet you guys at the turnoff to Turquoise Lake in about an hour. Okay, great. Hung up my phone and Katie and I are making a game plan about how to get back to that turnoff. All the while, while making these phone calls, I realized that I decided that it was important that I keep my backpack with me and strapped to my backpack was my giant inflatable stingray. So I'm making all these phone calls. I'm trying to keep myself together also while having a floaty attached to my back. So that was definitely an attention grabber for anyone who was watching this scene go down. So we make it back to the road and we're waiting for Todd. And after a while, Todd finally shows up with this tow truck. And this tow truck looks like it's come out of the 1940s. And my immediate concern is, is this tow truck going to make it up this road? Like, are we going to actually get there? So Katie and I hop in. Mind you, I still have my backpack and my inflatable floaty because you just never know when you need those. And we hop in the truck with Todd and we make our way up, up the dirt road to where my car is. We get up the road. We see the car. Todd gets out and assesses the situation. And he's pausing for a little bit. And I just remember asking him, I'm like, is it bad? And, and it is. So he's trying to figure out how he's going to connect these cables to pull the car up onto the road without sending it over the other side. So he's hooking the cables. Things are going good. I'm smiling at Katie. Katie's smiling at me. We're feeling good. Okay, we're going to get home. He starts the truck and he starts to reel in the cables, at which point everything just completely stops. And I'm wondering what's going on and, or something not working. Maybe he just needs to readjust a hook. At which point he informs us that the tow truck has run out of gas. And of course, we just, we're, we feel uh, overwhelmed with this information of what you got up here and the tow truck has no gas. So he goes, but don't worry, I brought reinforcements. I have gas tanks in the back of the tow truck. Okay, great. So we're feeling relieved again. Okay, we're going to get on the road. We're going to get out of here. And then again, Todd informs us that the gas tanks are completely out of gas. Unbeknownst to us, Sealy Lake actually has a reputation for gas bandits, um, young teenagers that come through and siphon out gas out of random vehicles. And ironically enough, Todd's partner with his tow truck company, had asked him the day before, did you fill up the tow truck? Did you check the gas tanks? Oh yeah, yeah, we got it. But here we are 11 miles up this road, no gas in the tow truck, no reinforcements. So we have to walk five miles back down this road because thank God Todd has AT&T so he can call his partner to bring up the extra gas tanks. So we walked the five miles, it's getting dark. It's a warm evening, but at this point, we're hungry, we're tired, we're just ready to go to sleep. So Todd gets a hold of his partner and he's on his way. And we start walking back to where the tow truck and our car are. 
And this was a great opportunity where we got to know a little bit more about Todd. He talked about his two sons. One was in the military, one was in the Navy, uh, a really proud, hardworking father. And I felt really safe with Todd. I just knew that however this was going to turn out, everything was going to be okay. But here we are, we're standing in the middle of this dirt road, it's nearing three in the morning. I'm tired. I want to go home. I just want to get in my car and leave. And we see these headlights of hope and it's Todd's partner that has brought the extra gas tanks. And so they were able to hook the cables, pull the car up onto the road and we were on our way. The whole time while we're driving back down to the highway, gravel is just flying out from underneath my car. And at this point, I just didn't even care. I was like, we're going to get to Missoula and, and it's going to be okay. And we pull up to the highway. I'm thankful to see the road and we make the turn and we're heading back to Missoula. And this whole time throughout this day, I realized that Katie and I, we never got angry at each other. We, we weren't upset. We didn't get mad at one another. Nobody blamed anybody. And I was really thankful for our friendship. I was thankful for the strength of our friendship that we were able to endure something like that and not get upset at one another. But I think the, the bigger picture of this entire day is that when everything went absolutely wrong, that could go wrong, it reminded me to step back and enjoy the small moments in between. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. Katie Matthews has lived in the Missoula community for the past 14 years. She is currently a sixth grade teacher. Katie loves sharing her passion for science in the outdoors with her students. When she is not teaching, she is guiding visitors down the Alberton Gorge west of Missoula in the summers. In our final story, Becca Frucht rallies the neighborhood to save an important long-standing housing development recently inhabited by some very industrious tenants. She calls her story... So about two months ago, the snow was just starting to melt around my town. And I walked out of the front door of my new house. I just moved here in July. And there was a notice from the city of Livingston. And I opened it up and it said, there's a tree marked with a red line on your property. We've decided it's a public hazard and we're going to be cutting it down. If you have any questions, call Eric. So I didn't even need to look around my property to figure out which tree that was. I knew exactly what it was. I was looking at it from my front porch. It must have been a really impressive, beautiful cottonwood in its prime, but now it's arguably dead. And it's kind of got the, you know, it's those amputations where they've taken down limbs over the years that were dangerous and big chunks of bark that are falling off and sort of littering the ground around it, but it has this big, beautiful trunk and it really must have been a beautiful tree. So it was still, of course, sad to think about, uh, but I went ahead and gave Eric a call and we immediately fell into like comfortable small town chatter. I didn't know what he looked like, obviously, but he sounded like an older gentleman and was really kind. And he told me, you know, a police officer recently had a tree fall in his car and the insurance company called it an act of God and refused to pay. And if you've ever like experienced the wind in Livingston, it is pretty much an act of God, but still totally unfair that the insurance company wouldn't pay. And anyways, he had to sue the city to get money. I mean, Eric's explaining all of this drama to me. So that is why they're being so proactive about any of the trees that might be a liability around Livingston. And ours is one of them. And I said, you know, old trees are a lot of habitat for birds. And he agreed, but he reminded me that if we didn't take down the tree using the city, 
right now, then possibly later down the road, it would come out of our pocket to handle it if it became an issue. So when I talked to my boyfriend later that night about the notice and the tree coming down, we agreed that it probably was time for, for the tree to come down. But before the city could uh, cut down the tree, the world kind of came crashing down around all of us with this coronavirus pandemic. And suddenly my world shrunk to the footprint of my yard and our, our home, our house. And I'm a very extroverted person. I'm like 150% extrovert. I take any of those personality tests and I'm like off the charts on that. I get my energy from other people. I like thrive in human chaos. So this lockdown, this social isolation is really hard for me and it makes me feel weird and heavy. I call it the Corona coaster, like just up and down, like all over the place. Um, and I, yeah, I was, I was, I've, I've been struggling. And so one of the things I would do is, uh, during this pandemic is I wake up in the morning and I look out of my bedroom window and there is that old dead cottonwood. And while the rest of the world is seemingly on lockdown and it's shutting down, this tree is coming to life and it's not greening up, but all of these birds have showed up, all these migratory songbirds, and they are all over this tree and they're Twitter pated and it's springtime and they're getting busy. I mean, like literally getting busy. I'm watching these birds mate and their little nut hatches and starlings and they're building nests. And I'm so jealous of these birds who they have no concept of worldwide pandemic of a virus and they're canoodling and hanging out. And all I want to do is the same thing with all my friends. And I'm not the only one in my home who is enamored with all the avian activity on the old tree. My two cats are enthralled and they sit transfixed by the window, like watching all the birds doing their thing. And that would be fine, except my cats are indoor. They're indoor kitties and they are because I, philosophically, I really believe that cats should stay indoors because one, I, I just would be devastated if they got hit by a car. And two, they kill a lot of native wildlife. And I named my cats after famed conservationist authors, Aldo Meowapold and Ralph Waldo Emmerpus, the conservationists. So clearly I cannot let these cats out, even though they are meowing like crazy, because I guess the birds have like, I don't know, caused some sort of primal need to be free. And I'm working from home, right? So I'm on Zoom calls all the time. And there's just constant, incessant meowing in the background. So I came up, I had a stroke of genius, two birds, one stone, for lack of a better saying, because my boyfriend also needed a pandemic project because he was kind of going a little stir crazy like we all are. And I thought, okay, there's a way to solve this kitty meowing issue and give him a project. And it's this structure that we decided to build, or rather that I convinced him to build. It's um, this tunnel that kind of comes out of one of our windows and goes into this enclosure that's like all this chicken wire. It's basically a kitty coop. And so they can like autonomously go out of the house through the little tunnel and then they're out in the sunshine and the fresh air and they can hear the birds, but they cannot get out. They can't go out there and um, cause any sort of feline chaos. So the catio is what we call it. And of course, while we're building this, my partner's cussing me the whole time. And my neighbors are like, what is going on over there? And we're all actually interacting in some ways from across the street more than we ever had been prior to the pandemic, right? We're all stuck at home. And I had been posting on Instagram an entire long story about my boyfriend building this catio. 
And one of my newest neighbors, Craig, hit me up on Instagram and was like, what is that? What's going on over there? Um, And I told him we were building a catio. And he was like, this is so amazing. I work in conservation. I love birds. Nobody ever cares about the birds. And this is, I'm totally supportive. I've seen these things on the internet and I can't believe y'all are actually doing it. And I was like, do we look like right trash? And he was like, no, it's great. Everyone loved the catio. So I felt so affirmed and seen. And we struck up this like really wonderful relationship. And I also told him, I was like, you know, this, this cottonwood that's home to all of these lovely birds that are nesting, it's got that red line on it because the city is going to come out and cut it down. And he's like, well, maybe, maybe they forgot about it because obviously everybody's priorities have shifted with this pandemic. But about two weeks ago, I woke up, the Corona coaster hit. I was in a low place. I just felt heavy. And I made the mistake of not watching the birds enough and went straight to social media. And that didn't help. And I ended up watching this like video on police brutality. It wasn't even on the pandemic. And I just was sobbing. So I did the thing that felt like an overdramatic solution to feeling like crap. And I put on Robin's song, Dancing on My Own. I don't know if y'all know it, but it is a banger if you are feeling depressed and also need to dance. So I'm cranking this and I'm crying in my kitchen and I'm just, yeah, not feeling uh, like myself. Um, And I go out of my front door and there is a notice. And it's from the city and it says, we're cutting down the trees tomorrow or Friday. So please, please move your car. Call Eric if you have any questions. And I just, uh, I pick up the phone. I call Eric and he says, oh, I'm I'm actually outside. I'm checking out your tree that we're going to cut down. So I rush back out. I'm in my pajamas because, well, I've been in my pajamas through the entire pandemic, except for now I have an excuse to dress up. And I um, go and find Eric. And he's kind of how I imagined, like a kind looking older gentleman. He's in a beat up Carhartt. He's got a beat up uh, truck. And we stand six feet apart, of course. And I say, does it, does it have to happen right now? And he, and he says, well, the trees, we usually do wait um, until the fall. But, you know, we're being really proactive, like I told you, after that incident. I'm like, well, maybe you can just trim some of the, the limbs. And he's like, well, that costs just as much as cutting it down. And at this point, I'm just like, I, Eric, I can't stomach watching this tree come down right now. I really need this tree to stay. And can we, can we, can we save it? At least till the fall. And of course, and I'm crying like I'm crying right now. And this poor sweet man is like, okay. We, we can do that. <laughs> Why don't you ask your neighbors because it's hanging into your next door neighbor's yard and let me know. I've got to go do my rounds. We're cutting down other trees today, but call me and just let me know. And the poor man, I mean, I was just like a wreck. <laughs> so he drives away. I immediately start texting Craig. I'm like, hey, I think I've sweet talked um, the city into not cutting down this tree. What do you think? I know we all kind of know it's a hazard. And he's like, go, viva the tree, like save it. And then I know I have to make a phone call to my next door neighbor where the tree is really close to her house. And she's a recent widow, lovely woman in this purple house that I'm very envious of. Um, And I've never actually called her uh, before. We've only ever talked over the fence. So I called her and I got her voicemail and it said, you've reached Jenny, leave a message for me and look for Walt and the stars. So now I'm like crying again (laughs) because of this sweet message. Finally, she calls me back. And I tell her, look, um, 
there's a chance we can we can save this tree and leave it up at least through the spring so these birds can nest. I mean, everyone, like, what just can we like? What do you think? And she said, you know, the the tree did have some branches that fell on my almost fell on my car a couple years back. But you're right, there's so much life in that tree, and those birds are all nesting. And you know, we're not supposed to be having evictions right now, anyways. So I trust you. You make the decision. Uh, so I got on the phone, rang up Eric. This is all happening so quickly. And I told him, we're going we're gonna to let it stand. We want the tree to stay, at least until the fall. And he said, okay. And it was just this incredible, like, felt like this small victory of hope and so much hurt that we've all been experiencing. And I immediately text Craig and was like, oh, you know, we saved the tree. Hope springs eternal. And he, um, he wrote me back. He said, you know, I have a top secret mission for you, too. And I was like, gosh, what else could be happening with birds and trees at this point? So he calls me and Craig says, my girlfriend and I, we, we got engaged during the Biden-Bernie Sanders debate with all this pandemic craziness. We just looked at each other and we were like, the world is nuts and we want to be together and we want to be together now and, and make it official. And they want to leave it as a surprise for the rest of their family and friends, but they just, they want to do it as soon as possible. And they asked me to marry them. And so now I'm crying again. And it's just like, I'm so, I mean, like such joy in being able to take part of that. So this past Friday, we walked down to the Yellowstone River and they were in their finery and they had a bouquet and um, we um, helped uh, his, his girlfriend walk on the rocks and her heels so that we could stand next to the water. And I read a poem that they um, had selected about a goldfinch falling in love with a sunflower. And it was just perfect standing by the Yellowstone in our chapel of love made of old dead trees. Thank you. Thanks, Becca. To see a photo of the catio with Becca's cats, Aldo Meowpold and Ralph Waldo Emirpus, and the cottonwood tree that Becca helped save, please visit tellussomething.org. Becca Frucht is a self-ascribed tumbleweed queen whose eclectic personal and professional journey has taken her from the red carpet to the Rocky Mountains. After a decade of big city adventures, she blew up her urbanite existence to live and work on an 87,000-acre ranch and has been exploring the intersection of open range and open minds ever since. She's a program officer with AMB West Philanthropies, the Arthur M. Blank Family Foundation's Montana-based endeavor, where she helps support and evaluate West Creek Ranch, an inspired retreat and think tank space. Becca also moonlights as an amateur cowgirl, karaoke professional, conservation cheerleader, and unicorn believer. Thank you to all of our storytellers. And thank you for sharing in the love of storytelling. Thank you for your love, your open hearts, and your respect. Without you, tell us something cannot happen. Most especially, thank you to all of our storytellers, Bonnie Bishop, Anna Steen, Katie Matthews, and Becca Frucht to learn about upcoming storytelling workshops, how you can share your story, to listen to past episodes and more, please visit tellussomething.org. 